0: welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday gospel reading this is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel and you would be most welcome just email me for the details but it is here for you to benefit from and I hope it enhances your experience of the mass so without further ado enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday gospel So if you would please join me in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we lift up to you this evening, this Bible study, all of our intentions, our worries, our hopes, our aspirations, anxieties, whatever is weighing on us or distracting us or filling our mind this evening. We pray, Lord, that you would empty us of those things so that we can be filled with your spirit and the words that you have in store for us in sacred scripture. We pray tonight, Lord, that you would illuminate the areas of our lives that are marked by confusion, darkness, despair, doubt, and that you would help us to know that you are faithful to your promises and that you speak those promises to us tonight as we dive into your word. And so we pray, Lord, that this time would be at your feet, that you would bless us each in the ways that we most need it. Bless all those still on their way and those who could not be here tonight, those watching later we pray lord for all of our intentions and we lift them up to you through the intercession of our blessed mother as we pray hail mary full of grace the lord is with thee blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb jesus holy mary mother of god pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death amen in the name of the father and the son and the holy spirit amen well good evening and welcome we are in john chapter 20 and we're going to be in verses 19 through 23 This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is Pentecost, the birthday of the church, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, a wonderful, incredible feast day, which marks the end of the Easter season. And so this gospel passage may sound familiar because we just had it in a longer version on Divine Mercy Sunday a few short weeks ago. So I thought about reading something different, but I like uh, operating within the liturgical cycle and showing us that even when you go back to the same reading, even if it's been somewhat recent... God continues to reveal new things. The Holy Spirit continues to speak in new ways. So um, if the Holy Spirit is not speaking in new ways, we can always go to the first reading and read about Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But I had a feeling that the Holy Spirit wanted us to reread just the shorter version of a gospel we read recently. So we're going to be in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. We'll read through this three times as it's shorter. uh, And we're going to, uh, first time through, just get an image of what is happening In this passage, this is John's account of Jesus coming post resurrection on the evening of the resurrection and breathing the Holy Spirit onto the apostles. So, John 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hand and his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read through this two more times. And as I read through it, these two more times, I ask that you uh, just simply reflect on the words. See if a particular word or detail stands out to you, strikes you for any particular reason. Does not need to be to theologically interpret the passage. You don't even have to know what it means, but it just maybe sparks something in you. grabs your attention, relates to your life or memory or whatever it may be. Begin reflecting on that or those things and ask the Lord, why this? What are you trying to say to me through this word, phrase, or detail? On the evening of that first day of the week, when the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive are forgiven them, and whose sins you retain are retained. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments to look over what stood out to you, why you think it did, and uh, take about the next 10 minutes or so. We're going to share at the tables. If you're watching later, please let us know what stood out. But for those of us here, uh, feel free to combine tables if you're smaller uh, and just discuss what stood out to you, why you think it did, any questions you have about this reading, and then we'll bring it back to the larger group to share those things and for further discussion. So take the next 10 minutes. So, a few things about this passage. As I said, it is the second reading for this upcoming Sunday, which is the Feast of Pentecost. And Pentecost uh, comes from the Greek word Pentekoste, which means 50th, or 50 days. And it's 50 days after uh, the uh, resurrection of the Lord, specifically the Feast of of Passover and its culmination in in the resurrection as it becomes in the Christian calendar. And so, previous to Jesus Christ, rising from the dead, this was still already a Jewish feast. It was called Shavuot, and it was the Feast of Weeks. Um, And so you would count seven weeks in a day after Passover, and that would be the Feast of Pentecost. So it's often called the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of the Harvest. They're all the same thing. And it was meant to mark the first days of the wheat harvest. And so they would go out, and they would harvest the first fruits of the wheat, and they would bring it to the temple, and they would bake two loaves of bread, of this new wheat and they would offer it in the temple. And the temple would often be adorned and decorated with fruits and flowers, which for us should be indicative of the Garden of Eden. If you know anything about how the temple was designed on the inside, there was all of this ornate decoration that was also meant to invoke the Garden of Eden. And so that was the original feast of Pentecost. It was this offering of everything that God had provided in the form of this wheat, this bread, in the temple, in such a way that signified this uh, return to Eden. And so it's appropriate for us, as we celebrate now in the Christian calendar and how this became the first Pentecost, the birthday of the church, as it's called, because the Catechism says that actually this is the moment when the Passover of Jesus is completely fulfilled. Because this is when the fullness of the Trinity is revealed, the Holy Spirit comes. And now we've experienced the fullness of God. And now the kingdom of heaven is open for those who believe. And so we have the opportunity to, through the offering of bread, the Eucharist, return to paradise, Eden, in heaven. And you see a lot of that imagery here in this passage. When Jesus appears to them, he comes and he shows them his side. That's the same place where the rib is taken out of Adam and new life is formed into Eve. Just like out of the side of Jesus flow blood and water, which are the signs of new life at birth and the signs of the birth of the church. And so this breath that that God breathes into creation in Genesis chapter 2, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same words are used that are used here when Jesus breathes on the disciples, breathing new life into them as if they are meant to be a new creation, welcomed, ushered into a new paradise, a new Eden, through the offering of this harvest through the form of bread. And it has this image of going out and actually reaping the harvest. They are now called, commissioned by Jesus, embodied with the gifts and the fruitfulness of the Holy Spirit to go out and harvest those people who are ready to believe, those people whose hearts are open and seeking a relationship with God, seeking to know this new way of Jesus. And so there's a lot of beautiful imagery here in kind of how the Holy Spirit is bringing forth a new creation. And we'll hear in the first reading, in Acts chapter 2, how this, the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles in the upper room and they begin to speak in different tongues. And if you know your Old Testament well, you'll know in Genesis chapter 11, the story of the Tower of Babel, where all the people spoke the same language, but they become proud and they want to build the temple up to heaven. So what does God do? He confuses their language and scatters them across the nations. What does Pentecost do? But it unites all of the nations back to one place and reunites their language in the Holy Spirit. And so on Pentecost is really a reminder for you and me of all the ways that God is trying to recreate what has been broken, what has been lost, all the ways we experience destruction, suffering, division because of sin. The Holy Spirit is trying to recreate all of that in us, in our world. And Pentecost is when that begun, began And every year when we celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, the close of the Easter season is meant to be a celebration and an invitation of renewal for that same Holy Spirit to do the same in us year after year, day after day, to bring unity, to bring fruitfulness so that others will see the glory of the kingdom of heaven, so that they will be ushered in to the new garden of Eden that awaits them in heaven that we have a glimpse of in the offering of the bread at mass. And so it's really beautiful New Testament, Old Testament imagery here.
1: The other thing I want to
0: point out, I think last time we had this this passage on Divine Mercy Sunday, I talked about, uh, at least I think I talked about, uh, God coming to us in our doubts and in our dark places. I focused on kind of the the fact that the doors were locked. But as I was reading this this week, this is why I want to read this again, even though it was just a few few weeks ago. um, New things uh, are inspired. The Holy Spirit speaks in new ways. And I was really struck by the fact that Jesus here is showing how faithful he is to his promises. Because all throughout uh, these previous chapters of John, when he's giving the Last Supper discourses, he promises a few things. First, in chapter 14, 27, he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. And then in John 16, verse 20 and 21, he says, Your grief will become joy. Your grief will become joy. And then lastly, in John 17, he's praying to God, offering the priestly prayer, and he's telling God, as you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. And so these promises that Jesus has of peace, of joy, and of sending on a mission, they are all fulfilled here. When he says, peace be with you, the disciples rejoiced, and he sends them forth, breathing on them in the Holy Spirit. So all of these things that Jesus has promised, even though things went so awry in a way that they did not foresee, and they thought everything was lost, everything was darkness, there was no hope, and they've been waiting 10 days since the ascension for this promise of the Holy Spirit, still kind of in this place of probably doubt and worry and anticipation and anxiety, Jesus continues to show that he is faithful to his promises. And so that really spoke to me, and maybe hopefully it will speak to you, and maybe the ways that you've been waiting. Maybe the ways that you feel like you're in a season of waiting or expectation or anxiety are ways maybe you feel like God is distant. Maybe he's not present in the same way or speaking in the same way that he used to. Trust that he is always faithful to his promises. And no matter what happens in between and how awry we think the plan of God is going,
2: whether we're worried
0: we made a wrong turn or we've turned too far away, somehow he always brings us back to the place where he can pronounce those same promises and fulfill them. The last thing that really, I didn't even prepare this, but this really struck me the third time we ran through it, is this phrase where Jesus stood in their midst, like just as one of them. He didn't come up on a stage. He didn't come down from the sky and elevate himself above the rest of them. He just came in their midst, in their midst, among them. I think that it was a saint or someone, I can never remember who said this quote, but said it if if Jesus had never given us the Eucharist, then the, uh, the next place where we'd experience the fullness of his presence would be in our neighbor. Like apart from the Holy Eucharist, we experience the body, blood, soul, and divinity most present in our neighbor, in the midst of us. That Jesus is literally walking amongst us. I mean, that was the ministry of Mother Teresa. She would find these lepers on the street and bring them into her home, people that others were afraid to touch, and she would cradle them and wipe them their sores, with a sponge, and just say, you can die now, Jesus. She saw Christ in everyone, in her midst. And Jesus is walking among your midst, our midst, every single day, and we miss him. In fact, I always say, most of us, if Jesus were to return, we wouldn't be able to pick him out of a lineup. We wouldn't recognize him. We would be so kind of caught up in our own idea of who Jesus was, and what he would look like, and what he was going to come and do. Most of us would probably miss him that's why most people, I think, missed him when he did come, because they had their own expectations, their own ideas of who the Messiah was going to be. And they were too rigidly held to that they were unable to see God right before them. And so where is Jesus in your midst? Because he's there. He's there. And even if you're in a season of worry or waiting, feeling like the promises of God are going unfulfilled in your life, where is he? Because I guarantee you, he is there. Probably in the place Right in front of your nose, but that it's it's like when you lose your keys, it's always in the last place you look. Not that you would keep looking once you found them, so it's always going to be in the last place you look. But, you know, for the sake of the analogy. Usually right there, you know, in front of our face. Any questions or thoughts on that or anything else that stood out to you in this passage? Yes?
3: What's
0: the literal meaning of Pentecost? The literal meaning is 50th or 50 days. Yeah, I think the actual literal Greek means 50th. Yeah. Yes.
1: Uh, how weird is it for Jesus
0: to breathe on the disciples? Uh, not as weird as we probably feel. Um, in, in Arabic and Semitic cultures, it's very common for people to stand very close to you. And to, because there's a belief that your breath is offering life and vitality to other people. So if you can stand close enough to another person that they can feel your breath, that's a sign of blessing. For us in America, that's like a sign of nightmares. You know, that's like, it's the opposite. We don't like that kind of, we like our personal space and our comfort. That's not true in most other places in the world. You know, so that closeness of breath is something that is very, it brings vitality. And that's the word in in scripture for the Holy Spirit. In Hebrew, ruach means breath. Also is the, the word for, you know, the invisible energy of the wind. You know, so anything that brings life, that brings vitality, that brings a sense of movement that is unseen, in Hebrew, it's called ruach. In Greek, it's pneuma. And that's the translation that we have. Any time you see Holy Spirit, it is hagios pneuma, or pneuma hagios, Holy Spirit. And so it's that holy breath, sacred breath. Um, so the same thing is true in those cultures. They practice that. Still to this day, you know, if you go to certain parts of the world, that's why people stand really close. You know, and you're like, oh, man, that's <laughs> you know, very uncomfortable. But they're trying to bless you. That's a sign of blessing. Other things stand out? Other questions? Yes?
4: I just wanted to say, I thought it was interesting how uh, it said for for fear of the Jews, Mm -hmm. given that um, this time period they were occupied by the Romans. Why does it say fear of the Jews instead of fear of the Romans?
0: That's a great question. Because when John was written, very likely, I mean, I I kind of have an earlier dating, in my opinion, of when John was written. But it was right right around the time or after the uh, temple was destroyed by Rome and where this persecution and division between those who are Jewish and those who are now practicing the way of Christianity were now uh, infighting at one another. In fact, a big reason why Rome was able to come in and destroy the temple is because there was a ton of infighting. There was a rebellion uh, from the Zealots against the Pharisees, so there was rebellion among Judaism, and there was heavy persecution from Judaism to Christians, and there was all this rioting and division going on, so much so that Rome just got tired of it, and they came in and just wiped out Jerusalem and destroyed the temple uh, because they just weren't aware of the fact that they were agitating Rome. So as Christianity developed... That is where a lot of the persecution was coming from initially. It wasn't necessarily the Romans. That came later. Um, they didn't ne- probably necessarily see it as any bigger, any more of a threat than Judaism was to them. But it was really the infighting initially in that first half of the century between Judaism and the Jewish leadership specifically. So when it says fear of the Jews, that phrase is used by John to signify the Pharisees and the scribes. The leadership of the Jewish hierarchy that was specifically against Christianity. Not to signify all Jewish people because no, no, they were converting. Yeah, yeah, but just to clarify. Yeah, but that's why it's not mentioning the Romans because at this point they weren't as big of a threat to them probably as the as the Jews were. Yeah. Yes? So Christianity existed before Jesus was born? No, Christianity was founded by Jesus. I
3: thought you just...
0: No, so the temple was destroyed after, this was all after Jesus uh, rose, died and rose. All that stuff that I was just talking about with Baron, and his question about why the Romans were not mentioned. Yeah. So Christianity was started by Jesus, did not exist. There were, I mean, we are a Judeo-Christian religion. That's how we categorize ourselves as Catholics. So meaning our, our faith is rooted in our Jewish history. That's why we have our Old Testament. Three quarters of the Bible is all about Judaism because it points to all of the things that are fulfilled in Jesus. And in Christianity. Um, so I think it's St. Augustine who says the old is revealed in the new and the new is hidden in the old. And so we retain that because those are our roots. So you could say the roots of Christianity existed before Jesus. But Christianity itself, as a new way of faith, was started by Jesus. Prophets were in the Old Testament, yeah. So they're prophesying of a Messiah. But they're most people believe that to be a Jewish messiah who's going to fulfill the Jewish covenants and the Jewish promises. They did not foresee that it was going to spring forth into this new covenant that became what we now call Christianity. Yes?
4: What was the difference between the disciples and the Holy Spirit then versus before, like
0: them going out and then killing people? With mm. Yeah, okay. That was not the question I thought you were going to ask, but that's a great question. So, the question is, what is the difference between the disciples receiving the Holy Spirit before this moment? Because they were obviously given some power and authority by Jesus to go and drive out demons and to uh, to bring healings and things like that. Um, so the Holy Spirit is always operating. So it's not that, like the Holy Spirit wasn't around. Because we see even before this, like in the beginning of Luke, that um, Elizabeth in her womb, John the Baptist, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And that from the very moment of Jesus' birth, it's all because the Holy Spirit is overshadowing and overpowering Mary. And we actually have mentions of the Holy Spirit filling people in the Old Testament. Joseph is enabled by the Holy Spirit to interpret dreams for Pharaoh. Um, Bezalel is uh, one of the artisans in the tabernacle. He is filled with the Holy Spirit to make beautiful things. The prophets are filled by the Holy Spirit to speak on behalf of God. And so the Holy Spirit, you'll find that phrasing or references to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, all throughout the Old Testament. It's only at Pentecost when the person of the Holy Spirit is fully revealed and given. So uh, the Holy Spirit's always present from the very beginning, has always been there, always will be, just like God the Father and God the Son, all eternally co-existing, um, because God is one who reveals himself in three ways, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So um, that revelation happened over time, but the Holy Spirit was always existing. So Jesus could, or God the Father could, dole out the Holy Spirit as he saw fit, you know, but it wasn't fully revealed as to what was actually happening, that the Holy Spirit was a real person of God, the third person of the Trinity, and it wasn't fully understood the power of that, what that meant until Pentecost. Does that make sense? Yeah. question I thought you were going to ask is, what's the difference between this and Pentecost Sunday? Because this happens on the first day, the day of the resurrection, and Pentecost is 50 days later, and so how do we make sense of these two, because it seems as though there's two Pentecosts, and um, biblical scholars, some of them say, so what? You know, like, God wants to give the Spirit twice, why not? Like, you know, uh, and that happens for us really sacramentally. We receive the Holy Spirit in one way when we're baptized, and then we receive a fuller sharing in the Holy Spirit when we're confirmed, and those happen at two separate times, right? Um, So it's not unheard of for that to happen. Uh, Most biblical scholars think John is writing that this is happening on the first day of the week for a specific purpose. He does a lot of things for literary or symbolic purposes that aren't necessarily as chronologically accurate as they would be like in the Gospel of Luke, and Luke wrote Acts of the Apostles. And so I'm one to believe that John is taking the, the events of Pentecost and placing them, in this narrative, in this order, for a particular purpose. Whereas chronologically, they actually happened in the timeline of Luke and Acts, because he himself attests he's trying to investigate everything accurately anew and provide the most accurate testimony of eyewitness accounts of exactly what happened. John isn't saying that. It's clear from the beginning of John that he is writing this very beautiful theological symbolic work of all the things, drawing out the divine imagery of Jesus Through all these signs and wonders. And so he's a lot more creative in the way that he aligns things, whereas Luke is very structured and orderly. So um, we can take it as this is one Pentecost that is written about in two different ways from two different perspectives, or there are many times in which Jesus poured out his Spirit when he sent the disciples out before the resurrection, and in this moment, and at Pentecost. So that's how we, we reconcile all of those.
4: Yeah. Um, I, just, I just got reminded of this but the comedian I think it was John Mulaney he talked about like them changing the script like how he's like didn't go to mass for a bit mm-hmm. and then they changed it from like peace be with you and then they're with your spirit you oh know, and also, also with you also. to and with your spirit yes yeah. 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 And I just remember when they changed the script like I just remember when I was younger I was like that doesn't really make sense in with your spirit I was like kind of like I don't know if upset I was upset, but I just remember I was annoyed. I was like, mm. it doesn't make sense. But I feel like it finally makes sense to me why it's in with your spirit. Like it literally comes directly from this you know, this part of the Bible. So yeah because Jesus lays that twice and um, this is when they received the Holy
0: Spirit. So mm-hmm. it's just really, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, and I will I will say um That speaks also philosophically to the distinction between the Holy Spirit and our spirit. Uh, And actually in the New Testament, there's a distinction that Paul makes between the soul and the spirit. And so uh, the soul simply is that which gives us life that is from God. So anything alive has a soul. Plants have a vegetative soul. Animals have a sensitive soul. Human beings have a rational soul. Um, And so all of these different souls embody those things that have that life from that soul to do certain things. And so because we are alive, anything that has life has a soul and is sustained by God. Our spirit is uh, philosophically seen as slightly different. It's that in us, which is not dependent on our body, but allows us to connect to the divine, to have a desire for the divine. So it's almost like a unification between our soul and our will. Any time we're directing that which is giving us life back to God, desiring to be in relationship with God, that is our spirit. That's why we call religious things spiritual. We're enacting our will so that our soul is being uh, open as a dwelling place for the Lord. So when the Holy Spirit enters us, it abides in the soul. But the soul is not this place like tucked away in your body. It's not this like little cage in the center of your chest. If uh your body was a peach, your soul would not be the pit, it would be the juice. So your soul is present in every form of your body, in every part of your body. So um if, if you were a table, the soul would be wood. You know, wood is the form of the table, just like the soul is in the form of the body. Without the soul, the body's nothing. Without wood, that wooden table is nothing. And so the same thing is true for us. So I don't know, a little philosophy 101 there about the distinctions between those things. But um, that's why the Holy Spirit uh, is, distinguished, is distinguished from our spirit. But when we are aligned with God, inviting him to dwell in our soul, then our spirit is that kind of way in which that happens. It aligns with the Lord and brings him invites him into our soul. Yes? Are they trying to say that your spirit
2: needs to be at peace in order to be more aligned? I give, with you and oh,
0: God. the Lord be with you and with your spirit. You have to be in a sense of alignment to really yes. receive grace, even
2: if it's just for the moment that you're receiving it. You could be tormented. Yes, I see what you're asking. Yeah, you have to open somewhere mm-hmm. spigot to be able to receive it. Yeah. So if, if that, I don't know if that's the allegory.
0: Yeah, and it, and there. that's exactly right, and it makes sense that that happens at the very beginning of Mass so that we are attuning our will to invite God to dwell in us. Right before communion, so we are attuning our hearts to receive Jesus' fullness of body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. And at the end of Mass, so we can be present then to how Jesus is calling us to be aware of his presence and how we're taking it out into the world and encountering him out in the world. So absolutely, yeah. Yes? You explaining what
4: spiritual means to align yourself it just reminds me how a lot of people will say, it's like, oh, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. Yeah. But it's like, that's contradictory, it seems. It but is. Yeah, it's like, how can you be spiritual without like this understanding of context? Because that's literally where the word came from.
0: Yeah. yeah, we call them SBNRs, spiritual but not religious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's how they're classified in spiritual and like religious surveys, you know, that happen. They're SBNRs. Uh, yeah, and S- SBNRs basically, yeah, some of them align with like, A spirituality that's more like new age spirituality, like everyone just believe what you want. We're all just like part of the ether and, you know, I'm Catholic, but I have a crystal in my pocket. I'm like, no, 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 like that's not okay. You know, those things don't align. Uh, But that which is spiritual is all that orders us to the Lord. Religion is a set of beliefs and a structure in which our spirit can operate as revealed by God to best encounter him. So when people say they're spiritual but not religious, what they usually mean is they don't like or understand organized religion or they have misconceptions or misunderstandings about it, but they still feel connected to God in some way. However, because that's so general, they tend to end up leaning toward things that are of New Age spirituality, which are very dangerous um, and can be open doors for all sorts of demonic and oppressive, oppressive activity for the devil to come into someone's life. Because when you open yourself just to the spiritual realm... That is embodied by good spirits and bad spirits. And so if you're not specific in the way that you are orienting your spirit, then you're opening your soul up for anyone and anything to dwell. And that can be very dangerous, which is why the church, and you'll see this often in examinations of conscience before you go to confession, if you prepare, the church always discourages practices of the occult, even things like using numerology, horoscopes, crystals. So if you use them like a spiritual practice, um, or as some kind of talisman or thing of protection, you're opening yourself up to spiritual things. Ouija boards, tarot cards, palm readers, mediums, all those fall in that category. So yes, back here. Yeah. Um, so I came here to really? receive
3: the Holy Spirit in a
4: seminar
3: many years ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I really can't believe that I had a spiritual experience as a young child from Catholic school and all that, but I believe that. I know this might sound really weird, but I don't know what that SPR thing
0: was that you said. But there are many spiritual people. Yes. That don't believe in Jesus. Yes.
3: Okay, and I am a faithful Catholic, and I don't. I don't believe that we. It's very difficult, and I struggle with this because I'm 64 years old now, and I teach Catholic faith, but. I can't I don't believe that Jesus puts us like that. But you have to believe I believe in Jesus and I'm mm-hmm. I want everyone to believe in it, but there's a lot of people that might not be able to. And I can't mm-hmm. believe that they're not God's child. Captain yes, King, yeah. Cuz I just felt like you kind of just I don't know, that just made me feel like wow. I'm what
0: what, what specifically that I said were you were you in reference to? I'm just curious as so I can, I can clarify. I So SBNR is is an abbreviation of people who who classify themselves on surveys, religious surveys, as I am spiritual but not religious. So I was just kind of defining what that means and then saying people who identify that way, um, what they usually mean is that they have a connection to the Lord, but they don't necessarily understand or believe in organized religion. And, however, that can sometimes tend itself toward dangerous things. But that's not to say that those people are disqualified from salvation or they're not on the path that will lead them to Jesus or that Jesus does not want to save them. Absolutely not. So there's not some kind of division that just because people qualify themselves in that way means they're condemned or they're going to hell. Um, They're maybe just not, have not yet experienced a fuller revelation of the truth to help them know Jesus. And even if they don't before they die, the catechism specifies that even though salvation is bound to the sacrament of baptism, God is not bound by his sacraments. He can save whoever he wants to save, however he wants to save. And it's only his decision who he judges worthy and unworthy based on their choices. He knows our hearts, and it's not up for us to judge. Yes, yeah. So thank you for asking for that, because I want to make sure I didn't misspeak. I did not have to
3: say that, because I have been in the unlawed for 36 years, and I'm <laughs> And there are many, many spiritual people, yeah. you know, and I believe when Mother Teresa said that the holiest woman was the Muslim woman praying in the back, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? Yeah. She didn't say, I'm not going to pick you up from the street. Yeah. So that's just, that was just a little bit of my Yeah, uh, and I,
0: yeah, and I mean, we, we don't ask for someone's uh, identif- Catholic ID card before we choose to love them. Yeah, before we choose to accept them. Yes, no, thank you for clarifying, I appreciate it, because I wouldn't want to be misunderstood as saying something other than that. So, yes, Baron. I can attest to what she's saying,
4: because I went to an AA once, mm-hmm. and uh,
0: yeah, there are definitely a lot of spiritual people. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's part of the 12 steps, you know, acknowledging there's a higher a power higher than yourself, and submitting yourself to that power, steps two and three, you know, so. Yeah, over here, and I'll come back to you, Matt.
4: Yeah, why don't we celebrate
2: this uh, Monday? Because that would be both the first and the 50th day
0: Um, Okay, let me do the math in my head. (laughs) Because a week, so if resurrection is a Sunday, a week would fall on a Saturday. So you have seven groups of seven. You'd end up 49 days as a Saturday, and then add one is the next Sunday. So Sunday to Sunday resurrection to seven weeks later, the next Sunday, the beginning of the eighth week, would be the 50th day, Pentecost. So it's not Sunday to Sunday that's seven days. It's Sunday to Saturday that's seven days. And so the next Sunday starts the next number. Does that make sense? Am I doing my math right? Yeah. Yeah. So it is 50 days, but the 50 falls on a Sunday because it starts on a Sunday. Yeah. Yes. Okay, Matt, I said I'd come back to you. Sorry,
4: this probably won't land, but I was going to say if I eat a fortune cookie for lunch, to have to go to confession. <laughs> if you eat a fortune cookie for lunch, you have
0: to go to confession. I mean, if you were spiritually attached to what the fortune cookie told you to do, and you started altering your life in a way that you were believing it, like you would a religious maxim, then maybe. But no, not usually. <laughs> it's all about openness and asserting belief. How are you participating in it? You know, if you walk past a Ouija board in a uh, a board shop, or board board shop, a board game store. Uh, you don't have to go to confession just because you're in proximity to something doesn't mean you're opening yourself up to it but the closer you are in proximity to these things more frequently the more likely you are to expose yourself to something you might open yourself to and there are degrees of severity you know fortune cookie is not nearly as high as Ouija board on the danger spectrum so yeah you don't have anything to worry about <laughs> yeah Chris Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's that passage in Genesis chapter 2. Chris asked about him breathing on them, if there's anything in the Old Testament. Um, but there is one specific, very famous prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 37. It's the prophecy of the dry bones. If you remember this, the valley of dry bones. There's a song about it. You know, them bones, them bones, them dry bones. Nobody? Okay, me either. So, um, but this is in Ezekiel chapter 37, and Ezekiel has this vision of dry bones. He says, As I watched... Sinews appeared on them, flesh grew over them, skin covered them on top, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, from the four winds come, O breath, and breathe into these slain, that they may come to life, and stood, or that they may come to life. And I'll end there. So it's this prophecy of a new life of those who have fallen. It's an imagery of those who have fallen to sin, but also those who have fallen to all of these battles and violence of the Old Testament. And this prophecy that new life will be breathed into them by the one called the Son of Man. What is the title Jesus most often uses for himself? Son of Man. So it's a, it can be a fulfillment, seen very clearly as a fulfillment of Ezekiel 37. Yeah. Yes? things.
1: One, not super... It's more of a, uh, a, a challenge to like the Gospel of John being written after the destruction of the temple. Yeah, uh, I think the biggest uh, flaw there is um, that that was literally prophesized in the Bible by mm-hmm. Jesus himself. And I, I find it ludicrous that no one mentions it mm-hmm. if it actually was written you know, after, so like, I think that's, for me, that's the nail on the top, then, as far Yes, as far yeah. As far as, like, uh, yeah, I'm one the to believe that John theory, was
0: written in, like, 68, 69 like,
1: AD. Could have been, yeah, I just, it would have been a really good affirmation, especially for the future, to say, hey, he said this here, and he said it here. Yeah. But on, on, uh, on the topic you brought up, a, a few things uh, are, you know, A, you know, I am luckily not in a position to judge people, mm-hmm. them, so that's very nice. Not be there so whatever that be um, god will always in any circumstance give every person the necessary grace to accept him so that is pretty much covers everything else because you know faith is a gift but you can re- you can, re- you can um, reject the faith right and uh and then on the other side you have him saying enter the narrow gate, the gate is wide that leads to destruction, and most people will go to that gate. And then on the other side, you have this, and, and last week saying, hey, everything I'm saying is so important, you have to go spread it to the world. So, it's true that God is not necessarily bound by his own words, uh, but he did die for them. he yeah. his son. So, I don't think we, because especially like we take the, the controversial topic of um, Unbaptized babies that are mm-hmm. aborted or miscarried—that's mm-hmm. a really strong use case for saying God's mercy. But even in the catechism, it says we leave them up to God's mercy. And yep. if the church could say it, it would. I think I think it would. Yeah. So I, I think that um, I am from the Middle East. I, I can tell you uh, there are the, the the level of like love that Christians and Muslims have is you know it's quite high, and and whether or not they go to heaven is is not in my um, is in my power in some sense. I can show them my love and you know, all that stuff. But but it, I just run. There's always this like type of universalism that needs to be rejected.
4: Yes. Like
1: you you don't have you know it's not in your own power to save yourself. Especially if you're coming from like at some point God gave you this grace and you just have to you just have to respond to it. And that, I think that's kind of the best way to always remember that mm-hmm. salvation is, redemption is for everybody, and salvation can be for everybody as well. Yes. And it's yeah. you know, so like, just do your, do your best. I, I always call it the baguette theory, it's coming from the Bible study I went to, where you don't have to tell anybody about how a baguette is made, but if you just walk by them with a baguette, it will get their attention, and they'll want it. Where'd you get that? that's great. That's why you know yeah. our, uh, the, the more you the analogy of, like we wear cologne, right? And mm-hmm. People, you smell nice, but smell nice spiritually as well. Yeah, and will attract more. Yeah,
0: uh, yeah, and I'm glad you brought up universalism because that is a, a heresy in the church that's to be rejected. This idea that we can definitively say everyone, no matter what, is going to heaven. We don't know that. So we can't definitively say that. People have a choice. Jesus is giving them a choice. But as you said, he gives them enough grace to respond to the choice. So as Bishop Barron often uh, characterizes it, we can believe in hopeful universalism. We hope that absolutely everyone gets to heaven and everyone in history has gotten there due to the mercy of God. We don't know that definitively. We know definitively certain people are in heaven. And we can never know definitively if anyone has ever gone to hell unless we ourselves get there. And we still may even not know because hell is isolating and you may only experience it in total loneliness and isolation from anyone else there. But we don't have that revelation doctrinally that anyone is there. But we do have it in heaven because that's how we declare saints. Saints are in heaven and they intercede on our behalf. And the church officially declares them saints by acknowledging they are officially in heaven interceding for us. So there is a distinction there. That, you know, we can't go too far in that direction of just being like, you know, everybody is, is just, no matter what, Jesus is going to love you and you don't have to worry and you can make whatever decision you want. No, Jesus is pretty specific. You need to make certain decisions and the not good ones are going to have detrimental effects on you. But each person is also judged according to their knowledge of the truth. Um, they're judged according to, you know, the state of that truth, that their heart, whether they have the disposition, the mental awareness, all of that. And we have no concept of that. God does. So, we operate under hopeful universalism, but we recognize that there are prophecies saying these things, that destruction will happen, and there are two different kinds of prophecies, those that will happen, and those that will happen unless you do something about it. And that is where these commissions of going forth, making disciples of all nations, receiving the Holy Spirit, and spreading that across the world come into play, because Certain prophecies may not come to pass as destructively for some people if we intervene on their behalf, and so there is, you know, a precedent for that even in the Old Testament and certain other historical prophecies. But um, yeah, there is a distinction there. Yeah. Do
1: you mind touching on the point somewhere? Paul says something about you know those who are under the law are judged by the law, and those who are not under the law are judged according to their conscience. There's something. Yes. That, yeah. So like that—that's a perfect. What maybe what I was exactly trying to say is God mm-hmm. is a perfect and partial judge, right? Yes, yeah. And so, what looks like, you know, five pounds of faith opportunity for you might be a pound for him, but he's, he, he knows how to, you know, judge you according to how far that faith should have taken you. Yes. And like if you were given this as some native person in Africa, you know, mm-hmm. maybe that would have been just a sentence or just mm-hmm. a, a piece of, you know, a book. Yeah, and then it could have just been the sun coming up and recognizing that something is bigger than that, right? Yeah, so, yeah I think it's even in the, probably in Roman, not Roman. but uh, I'm not making this up, right? Yeah, no, no, no. You're right. I don't, I don't recall where it is.
0: Um, there is disputes about being under the law in Romans and in Ephesians and Galatians, so it's probably one of those. Um, but yeah, that's we always come back to this. We've talked about this several times here. Baptism by desire, and that's a section in the Catechism that says exactly that. You know, um, that those who Uh, knew the fullness of truth, had it been revealed to them, would have explicitly desired baptism. So they are judged according to the level of truth that has been revealed to them, which only God can know. So, So it's just like God is not going to expect you to be able to pass the bar exam if you're in your first semester of law school. And so there are people out there in the world who are in their first semester or haven't even started the spiritual school of life yet. They don't even know any version of that truth yet. So they're not going to be expected to pass the bar, but they're going to be expected to pass the test at the end of that course, you know, to the level of knowledge that's been revealed to them. So that's kind of the analogy you can use. Yes?
2: I was going to say, um, I think we also have to realize that the vast majority of people, their faith was originated by violence because their culture, somebody conquered somebody, Hmm. and the people that won imposed their beliefs on those. So that could be Catholicism, it could be Islam, it could be anything. But, it, but in order to survive in a that culture, for example, if you have a culture that's not heterogeneous, like say perhaps in Japan, I was just mm-hmm. hearing about you know how the Jesuits got kicked out, in, in China, um, you know Catholicism is a universal religion, and as is Islam. But but if you're born in a certain country, even now, or a certain culture, if you're going to stay in that culture, you pretty much have to buy into what somebody's telling you. And we're different here because people came here because they wanted to get away. The United States is a completely different place than the vast majority of the world. I don't think we understand that. Especially sure. when people come here with their hundreds of years of culture and they want to keep parts of it, you know, and then they go, What what do we you know, what do we do?
0: Yeah. So Yeah, I, I, I see where you're coming from. I think that's true maybe for the first generation of those who maybe that was imposed upon. I think eventually that kind of immediate threat goes away. Um, but I will say, and it's all determined by our free choice. So if you do something under duress, whether it's sinful or uh, faithful looking, uh, God still knows your, your conscience and your true will. And so that's going to be taken into account. I will say, though, however, because uh, I came across this statistic today, um, those people who are um, um, Muslim, who have converted to Christianity since the year 2000, of them have reported that Jesus has appeared to them in a dream.
2: They did not know who he was.
0: Many of these people, I think it's about 80 to 85% of those who are Muslim, especially in that part of the world, don't even know a single Christian because of how the communities are organized uh, in a lot of those very strictly Islam nations and Islam communities. And so those who have Jesus appeared to them, there's actually billboards in the Middle East that say, if a man in a white robe has appeared to you in a dream, call this number. That's a real thing, because people don't know who this person is, but it's happened to them like wildfire. And even though horrific things happen, even from their own family members, there's an account of one young girl who converted to Christianity. Her brother found out. He beat her to a pulp, drew her out into the middle of the village, and set her body on fire because she became a Christian, his own sister. And so even under that threat of imposed geographic religion, people are still converting. So there's always the other end of the spectrum. So I think what you said is absolutely valid. And it's the same thing can be said of, is true of the family of faith that we originated, even if it wasn't oppressive. It's just we were raised by our parents who were of a certain faith, and we're obviously going to lean or have uh, inclinations toward that faith, especially in our young life, and we'll have a certain nostalgia toward it as we grow older. Um, but there is also the interplay of grace and the revelation of truth, and that that's unceasing in the way that Jesus is running after us. And so I think Christianity is unique in that because it's the fullness of truth, especially expressed in Catholicism. And so... Yeah, I think there's definitely truth to what you're saying, but I think I've also seen the other end of the spectrum too, where people just will switch despite the most oppressive circumstances. I you know,
2: more than
0: Sure. Yeah. What I'm at. Sure.
2: If you're from northern Germany, you're not a Lutheran. You know, yeah. Good luck. You switch. Yeah. <laughs> and same as if you're in southern Germany, you're generally a
0: Catholic.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The ruler was that
0: way. Yeah. So are you? Is that a survival? Yeah. <laughs> Any f- one final thing? I saw some hands up and then they went away. <laughs> I think
3: that was mine. Can you just explain the last sentence to me,
2: what your interpretation Whose
0: sins you forgive are forgiven them, whose sins you retain are retained. So obviously here we have the explicit permission from Jesus, not just to Peter, like he gave in Matthew 18. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. We have now extended to all of the disciples the authoritative ability to forgive sins that's explicit to the priesthood, specific to the priesthood. But we also have this retain uh, sins. And people are often like, what, sin- what sins are priests retaining? Um, and uh, what I usually say is the, the church specifies the only sin that is unforgivable is the sin you do not ask, for, uh, ask forgiveness for. Or the sin you do not repent from. And so a priest cannot give forgive a sin that you, uh, you don't ask forgiveness for, or if it is clear in the confessional that you are holding on to a particular sin, you're only confessing it out of habit or a fear of not going to hell, but you're not truly repenting. You're not truly, um, what's the other word I'm trying to think of? Um, right. Sorrowful, contrite, you're not truly contrite. They can point that out and encourage you to do further penance. Um, this also speaks to the authority of the church has to excommunicate, uh, excommunication is often very much a, a misunderstood. It's not a declaration that someone is kicked out of the church. Excommunication is a declaration by the church that someone has broken off from the church. And the church is trying to recognize, hey, you've separated yourself from the church, come back, back into community. You've excommunicated yourself, come back into community. So that's a way in which they are retaining a division, showing that it's there. But always trying to reconcile it. The last thing I'll say is, in the original Greek, uh, the phrasing is, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, whose sins you might retain, whose sins you might retain will then be retained, just as in for, forgive, whose sins you might forgive will then be forgiven. So there's an expressive like it's it's not guaranteed that that situation will ever happen, but you have the ability to do it if you so choose. So, yeah. Anytime. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this rich discussion and all the ways you illuminate our hearts and minds, especially to your mercy, how you're desiring to create us anew and love us in new ways through the gift of your Holy Spirit. So we pray, Lord, that we'd be open to receive whatever you have in store for us this Pentecost Sunday. And we pray for a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit on each one of us, on our families, for us to be more faithful to our vocation, whatever that may be, permanent or temporary, and to inspire us in our universal call to holiness to be saints out in the world and to bring your forgiveness, your love, your mercy, your peace, your joy to others. Help us to not waste the gifts of the Spirit and to recognize that your Holy Spirit is at work in us, has always been at work since the beginning of time. And so help us to give your Holy Spirit permission to animate our lives in all that we do. We pray all of this in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.